Welcome to the Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Hewlings Fund for Visual Artists. The Clark Hewlings Fund exists to provide business training and entrepreneurial learning to visual artists to turn working artists into thriving artists. Thanks to Art Placer for their support of this episode of the Thriving Artist Podcast. Art Placer allows artists, collectors, and curators to visualize art in place. In addition to their site, mobile app, and widget, Art Placer is launching Virtual Exhibitions, a three-dimensional and interactive experience that allows visitors to navigate a gallery space and interact with art in real time. For more information, go to artplacer.com. Out there in the podcast universe, our listeners find us on iTunes, Spotify, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, and nearly every other audio programming platform. We're proud to welcome Amazon and Audible to the mix. Listen on the go from the Audible app or ask any Amazon personal assistant device. Now, our guest today is illustrator Melissa Whitaker, working full-time for companies across the U.S. to assign visual energy to their branding and storytelling. Melissa's clients include Madpipe and Free Agent Source. Commissions include businesses in food and beverage, medical and real estate, as well as work representing creative professionals, including cover art for musicians and authors. Melissa crumpled up her commercial real estate license in 2019 and now has a booming art business to show for it. Whitaker's works have been exhibited in L.A., San Francisco, Kansas City, and St. Lewis. She describes her style as pop graphic noir. Welcome to the show, Melissa. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Well, I want to ask you first about the work you produce. It's art for commercial application. So help us understand that. What does that mean? Well, so often in today's world, companies want to tell their story, not just their product, but the whole background story of who they are and why they do what they are doing. And so often, maybe they can't find the perfect stock photography for their business, and they want to stand out from all the other people or all the other companies out there. And so they will come to me to illustrate their story and make their website or material, even their PowerPoint presentations, stand out from the rest. Okay, great. So that was going to be my second question, is what type of art are we talking about? What what are the uses? And it sounds like you're providing these firms everything from sort of hero images for their website to uh, PowerPoint uh, illustrations to social media stuff uh, and even sort of core branding. I would call you a visual storyteller. And certainly the work that you do for Free Agent Source and Madpipe is commercial storytelling in a visual venue. So my next question is, how does this differ from the usual thing where, you know, there's some words on a page and someone finds a stock photo to go with it? (laughs) Well, it's a lot more personable. And then you can create characters that will continue the story and actually hopefully bring people to come back to see what those characters are doing next. And you can take those from scene to scene throughout your website or presentation. So, Melissa, I want to dig into that a little bit, the part you mentioned about your process involving character creation. So you literally spend time uh, creating, defining, naming the actors, I'll call them, that appear in the end product. Why do that? Why not just use sort of generic people for each scene? 
Because if I don't name them or give them some sort of personality to begin with, then they become generic people. And you don't want generic people. There are no generic people. And if you give them a personality or a look and give them a name, you're giving them life. You're giving them soul. And that can be translated to the viewer. Okay, so that makes sense. And uh, that is also part of the answer to why, how this differs from, from stock art, because we certainly see a lot of stock art out there. The bane of the creative professional, you know, art that's made to fit any purpose for anybody and, and without any thought of the context. A lot of that stuff has sort of generic people, right? There's the generic smile, two guys talking over at a, over a desk in an office place, one guy's handing another a clipboard that you just know is blank, and they're both having entirely too much fun staring and pointing at the clipboard. I've never seen two people in real life actually point at the same clipboard at the same time and have fun talking about it. Like, it just doesn't happen, at least in my line of work. Uh, and I, I can just see somebody using that for, for, a, <laughs> for a hospital. Uh, so, you know, like, look, this guy has, you know, cardio, a cardiopulmonary arrest, you know, well, isn't this fantastic? We're enjoying the heck out of it. <laughs> it just doesn't seem real. Yeah. Uh, so I want to dig in even a little deeper and, and say, well, you know, is this, is what you're doing part of a trend toward businesses wanting more artist driven content to represent them? Oh, definitely. The world is changing right now. It's not even what it was in 2019. So companies are changing along with the world and adapting to what we are doing. And to reach out to people who are not really um, socializing much anymore, they've got to put that personality into their marketing presentations, whatever they do. So I do see several new people coming in to have personal illustrations. I'm talking to a real estate agent right now who wants to market herself through the illustrations and make herself stand out from all the other real estate agents out there. So I'm excited. Well, I, you know, you've talked a little bit about um, what a company gets out of investing in an artist instead of buying clip art or stock photos. And you've talked about sort of the fact of having characters with backstory um, to make the scenes that you make stronger. Um, and I'm sort of also assuming that that helps in reusing uh, characters to create kind of continuous story arc versus sort of illustrating every page every PowerPoint slide or piece of collateral with a different group of people in a different setting. Uh, is that continuity uh, between your, is there that continuity between the scenes that you produce for any given client? And is that actually a way that you generate additional value and additional business and income for yourself by, by saying, look, instead of creating one scene, I can create a, a series of interrelated scenes that form a story. Yes. And, um, one thing that a lot of my illustrations do, if it's a complex illustration with several individual people, each of those characters are drawn individually and on a separate layer so that they can be reused in other scenes or by themselves as kind of like stickers 
general way. Um, you can post them here or there, which really makes it unique and has that continuity that all the way through. So if you have one character in a scene, you can take that character and actually use it as your profile picture or an avatar or even in your email signature, if you'd like. So what I'm hearing is that, you know, even though your work, it's fine art for commercial application. Um, I don't think anybody could look at this and say, you're just drawing stuff. I mean, this is fine art. Uh, I have some of it on my walls. And I, I can't help but note the difference you're describing between this and a lot of fine art. So in the old days, fine art was essentially, you know, two-dimensional. Even if it represented a three-dimensional scene and had perspective, it's not like you could take the Mona Lisa out of her background and then put her, drop her into a different scene instantly or something like that. With your work, you know, and, the, and we see all, the, all these, um, these situations where like a Vermeer, they, you know, they realize that behind a painting is a, is a Vermeer or behind one of Vermeer's paintings is an earlier version of a different Vermeer. And they can use sort of uh, this modern technology to surface uh, these layers. But you've made the layers modular. It would be like us looking at a painting uh, by Picasso and being able to lift some portion of that out and drop it into a different Picasso painting or a different environment. That's pretty hot, I have to say. I mean, how did you how did you hit on that, or is that just an obvious thing that comes from wedding graphic design to to fine art? Well, it is a gradual learning experience that I had to do, and. I do a lot of my illustrations, my digital illustrations, with the Procreate program. And when your canvas size gets larger, the fewer layers you are given to work on. So I have had to teach myself to do the background, like in one file, and then the characters in a completely separate file. And that way I can take the character and paste it onto, or yeah, kind of like a copy paste a new layer onto the background layer. And then if I don't like them in a certain position, I can move them around. And because everything is built up on layers, you can also change colors easier. You can change the palette. And sometimes you can change the texture of an item. You can change the lighting. You can play with it without destroying a piece of paper with an eraser. It's so virtual. And Procreate is wonderful on letting you do that and all the options that it gives you. It's a completely expanded artist palette. And then you get to store it in the cloud. That's wonderful. <laughs> Well, so I can hear a lot of people sort of scrunching up their nose and saying, well, this is graphic design, it's not fine art, et cetera. And, you know, I, I need to point out at this moment that uh, the Thriving Artist Podcast is a, a program of the Clark Hewlings Fund and our namesake, uh, Clark Hewlings, used exactly this methodology in an analog way and later uh, in a digital way when Photoshop was invented. So what he would actually do is he would paint individual, paint or draw individual snippets, if you will, or characters. Uh, he might paint a donkey by itself and a house by itself, et cetera. 
And he would arrange these different things on his main canvas using different versions of them until he got the composition and layout he wanted. And then he would bring the entire composition together. And later, uh, he was one of the first artists to do this. Later, when Photoshop came out and became prevalent, uh, he began doing this with Photoshop simply because he could do it faster. So the barrier between uh, digital and fine art in that way uh, doesn't really exist anymore. We're talking about a, a master American painter doing this. And now when I hear it from you, I think, well, your art is also on people's walls. It's on my walls. Is there any actual difference between art for a website and art for a wall in your world? Not really, no. Um, because I can take something and I can have it printed. And even in today's world with a whole new world of crypto art is coming out. It works a lot like the Bitcoin where you can take your digital artwork and you basically encrypt it where the person who's buying that is buying the original, virtual original in a way. So it's not just a digital copy. And that has value to it. So, yeah, it, it's a whole whole new world. <laughs> it's We're moving into a wonderful new age of art. And I just find that extremely exciting. And you also have to look back. Animation kind of started that way, too. Um, Walt Disney, they would build up on cells, on, you know, cellophane cells. They would build up the image. And so really, Procreate is kind of the same way of building up like that. And I literally sit and draw on my iPad with a pencil. So it's a combination of the digital world with the fine art world. So a lot of your work uh, seems to draw on universals that we see in other forms of storytelling, movies, songs, TV shows, album and book covers, you know, situations that have resonated with audiences, uh, but you put your own twist on them and apply them to a particular customer's uh, context. Are you doing that intentionally? And by that, I mean, are you drawing on those types of sort of pop culture sensibilities and universals that we see in movies. By universal, I mean like the action hero or the femme fatale or the noir detective, et cetera. Um, yes, I do draw a lot of influence from those. And I find that in today's culture, a lot of other people refer to movies, they have a quote from a movie that they're very into the current pop culture. And it has worked its way into our civilization and people can really relate to that. And I find that if a client gives me movies to watch, you know, they'll say, oh, I'm thinking of the transporter <laughs> or I'm thinking of 80s music, so give me a playlist to listen to. And it helps, I find it helps get me into the mood that they want, puts me into the zone, so to say. And that will come out in the art. I try to put everything, all of me, into the art. So whatever is going in is coming out into the art. 
Yeah, so full disclosure, uh, a couple of the companies we've mentioned, Madpipe and Free Agent Source, I'm a principal in both of those companies, uh, which is um, how we met, although technically we met earlier than that at a art business conference uh, pro produced by the, the Clark Healings Fund. Um, but, but we didn't have much in the way of an individual conversation until you sort of became the official artist for our companies. And that reference to the transporter is literally something I, I handed you and said, all right, the vibe I'm going for, if you haven't seen this movie, watch this movie. And, and it wasn't the only thing I dropped in your palette. It was a mix of six or, or, or seven different things. Uh, but you synthesized it really well and spit out very much uh, the vibe I was going for, uh, so much so that uh, we kind of gave it a, a name uh, at Madpipe. Uh, we refer to our brand sensibility as modern noir. And similarly, at the other company, Free Agent Source, we refer to uh, that sensibility as 80s wave, um, which has to do with the color palette and some of the stylistic elements and so on. Um, now, I remember, and, and I know that you're a big fan of movies and you're a big fan of movie posters and movie art. Um, I saw a documentary called 24 by 36, which is about the history of movie posters. But more importantly, it's a movie about artists and the role of artists in contemporary culture, in pop culture, in the larger culture. And it makes the point that in the 70s and uh, on through like the, the mid 80s, uh, that uh, artists, specifically illustrators and painters, were uh, the primary driver of movie media, uh, meaning the, the advertising media that movies put out in the form of posters and book booklets and other things. Uh, and that shifted um, to photographers sort of taking that role. And we call the resultant type of movie poster. Now it's, it's an utter cliche. Every 90% uh, of movie posters you look at are following what's called the two head or the three head model, where whoever the stars are, it's their two heads, Michelle Pfeiffer, De Niro. And so you just have their two heads and a little bit of photography and then a car explosion in the background and a title and a fancy font. The artist is gone from that equation. You know, uh, it'll be, um, <laughs> it'll, it'll be Emma Stone and, you know, it's, uh, also a thing that's being demanded by the agents of those artists. So even when studios try to push back and say, hey, we really want to do something artsy, you get two kinds of pushback. Well, people will think it's a cartoon if we have an artist draw it. Uh, so we can't do that. And it doesn't explain why for 20 years we had movie posters that, <laughs> that people didn't get confused. Much longer. If you go back to the movies of, of the first movies that were talkies, those were done by, those posters were done by artists and nobody thought they were cartoons. Uh, but then the other is that the agents will get upset and want their, their actor to be in another movie because we need their headshot prominently featured so we can, we can boost their personal brand. So a lot of that has reduced the role of artists in contemporary culture and the prominence of artists as being central uh, to the business of being creative professionals. And some artists have even got on board that and are sort of crit critiquing artists who do this type of work. Uh, sort of selling out rather than looking back and thinking, well, you take Robert Watson, whose work is on my walls. Uh, he does this fine art and he was specifically chosen as a fine artist by um, to have his uh, his work be on the cover of the Martian Chronicles. And it's now icon iconic, that work. Uh, it's one of the reasons why he's so well known in the larger culture. He didn't start out doing it, but he certainly took that work on. So I feel like it's kind of silly. And as a result of this, I have to ask you, what is your assessment of the market? Is this a big market out there or is it becoming a bigger market or is it still an uphill battle? 
I believe it is becoming a new market again. It's coming back in a new way. If you take a look at like Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that movie poster was a fine art. It wasn't the photography. It had a Robert McGinnis style to it and actually kind of took you through the story of the film. And that probably, in my mind, caused interest in the movie. In other words, I probably wouldn't have gone to see a Quentin Tarantino movie if it was just a picture of, was it Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio? And then it's with the advent of Netflix becoming so popular now, they are, for just their thumbnails on Netflix, they are using other artists' interpretations of the movie poster. And I've noticed also with a lot of the new credits, introduction credits, that a lot of them are becoming animation. Oh, Sabrina and the Teenage Witch, that series on Netflix, has a wonderful introduction with graphic novel design artwork at the beginning. And Anna with an E series has some wonderful artwork at the beginning. And they're starting to put that. I'm seeing that more and more in movies and in TV series where they add this animation or artwork. And it just enhances the story and doesn't take away from it. So, yeah, it's coming back. People are finding that there is a lot more in the artwork than in just the photography, the headshot of the movie poster. In fairness, I mean, you know, that that movie poster, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it is an artist's rendering, but it is still the three heads model very much. Uh, in the, So the artist drew them, and, and so it's an evolution. Hollywood is not ready to to let go and find its courage and and completely let the artist do the kinds of interpretations we saw in Jaws, for instance. If, if Jaws, the movie poster, was done today, instead of having a giant shark swimming up from below and a bikini-clad set of legs uh, hanging down that were tiny, tiny, the shark would be the smallest thing in the, in the poster and the actress's face would be yeah, the... Yeah, it would be the biggest thing if, yeah. And and so where we see this coming in now is, uh, I mean, you just Google it. Google 2019 movie posters. Find me one that doesn't have a giant head of the actor on it. Uh, the answer would be, well, the Joker. Uh, so any, anywhere that you see sort of a graphic novel history behind the movie, it's a Marvel movie uh, or something like that, you can kind of get away with it. Um, Star Wars has always kind of done this. In fact, you know, Star Wars art got a lot of people interested in movie posters and anything that's sort of Pixar and Disney. But in, in standard films, find me an action film, man, where, you know, I'm not looking at one man stands alone. Liam Neeson in the fifth time his children get kidnapped. He's a terrible father, <laughs> et cetera. <laughs> like, why didn't you put put a bracelet on him? What are you doing? Uh, so I hear you that the market is changing, but I, I think we've got an uphill battle to make sure uh, that people understand that what artists bring is a level of ingenuity, a level of uniqueness, and precisely the thing that you're offering to corporate clients, which is 
look, we can tell a story on the cover instead of just tell you who's going to be in the story. And in that way, a, a movie poster can be a lot more like sort of a mini trailer for it. That brings me to, I, I want to move on to a question about your styles and inspiration uh, as a segment, but, but uh, I want to round this segment of the show out by asking you uh, about visual storytelling, therefore, in general, because that's what we're talking about, uh, is, is being able to more effectively tell a visual story as a fine artist. What have you learned, uh, if anything, uh, that we haven't said so far about visual storytelling in general or in the corporate world? It's a totally different way of composition and thinking. When I'm designing like the hero image for a website, you can't, the one third rule doesn't always work. The picture has to fit on a widescreen as well as translate onto a mobile phone or an iPhone. That has been a true learning experience for me on how to tell the story, an interesting story, in a way that will translate on several different devices. It, it's something I've had to learn all by myself, and it is quite a challenge. Because traditional artwork, you're taught to follow the golden rule, the rule of thirds. You want to fight that putting something right in the center. But sometimes that's what you have to do in order to have the picture work on an iPhone. I know what you're talking about. Uh, we've worked on this a bit. Uh, the, you know, if, if an image is going to be a background image, the web designer determines what the focal point is of the image when you resize on a phone and you really, or, or any device, it's not just about phones. It's, you know, the difference between an 11 inch laptop, a 13 inch, a 15, a 17, a 19 inch, and a full size monitor all have differences. And as those images yeah. scale down in a virtual environment, um, the, the developer designer overall on the project has to make choices about whether or not, okay, when it scales down past a certain point, like let's say to a mini tablet, we're going to show the left third, the middle third, the, the right third, or we're going to have the whole image resize and risk elements of the image now being inscrutable. If you had a semi, like you take the movie poster, The Dead Don't Die, uh, which came out recently, obviously. And thank God, Bill Murray's head and Tilda Swinton's head are not what we see on the poster. <laughs> I think maybe they had too many heads. <laughs> Their names are everywhere. I mean, it's it's literally 12 star names are on the side margins of that poster. But the poster is a hand, a zombie hand coming up from the ground under which it says the dead don't die. And then in the background, there's sort of a cemetery with little crosses. Well, at a certain size point on say an iPhone 5, uh, you're not going to see crosses. You're going to see a smudge and not know what you're looking at. And so the, the designer has to to make a choice about what's going to be visible and have that be a dialogue with the artist. And you're sort of capturing that point that those who would work in creating art for a corporate environment for deployment in a virtual setting need to speak that language, understand how that works, and be able to play on a team that interacts with potentially another designer or a developer. Uh, I think that... I lied. I'm going to ask a follow-up, a redirect question. So, um, <laughs> because, you know, one question and one answer about, yeah, that's been a learning curve. That sounds like a big learning curve, Melissa. Uh, how have you, 
how yeah. have you managed to to cover that ground? And in my perception, you started doing this what in 2019, so you you covered that ground fast. Yeah, I actually kind of started in 2018 with that, and um, what I've kind of learned along the way, lots of trial and error, lots of redos, um, is if you put something of interest in several different areas of the canvas, so to speak, then whatever size you're looking at, you can scale. There's something of interest telling the story that you want to tell all throughout the picture. Like a bar scene that we that I did, you want characters throughout the picture. The main characters mostly in the center, but there's interest. So your eye is following the storyline throughout okay so you're talking about uh either there's a bar scene at freeagentsource.com which is uh farther down the page uh that you did and uh depending on where you look you know you can take in the bartender and what's going on there you can take in the band and what's going on there but at the same time you have created that mobile first or more correctly it's really not about mobile it's responsive a lot of people don't know that term it's about being what we call mobile responsive which just means you can look at it on any device even if it's not mobile regardless of screen size that responsive first approach means the speech bubbles are in the middle (laughs) because the focal point is in the middle when you resize the browser or put it to a different device you may not be able to see the bartender anymore or the band, but you can see the two people in the center of the scene talking about uh, what they're talking about. And that could have been a choice to make it the left or the right or the center, uh, but the collaboration with the web developer uh, put it in the center. So I think a lot of that flies in the face of, when you make art for hire, a lot of that flies in the face of, I'm making my inner muse, uh, but it's really not about killing the artist's vision so much as adapting the artist's vision to a commercial application. Do you find that there's a a struggle though sometimes between uh, following your muse, doing what you want to see up on the big screen and doing what the developer needs? There are struggles at times. There are directions I want to go in and the the client has to like pull me back and say, no, 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 that's, that's, the wrong way or that looks like a really fun way to go but we can't go there (laughs) so um that tends to be difficult sometimes and but often when i do start going there i will go ahead and still create it because i can use that somewhere else so i'm very open to change and adapting because i will always try to make something work. Even if it doesn't work, I will make it work. It might take a little bit longer, but I will get there. (laughs) I can say that uh, my experience is that's true. Uh, We'll talk, it made me smile when you said, sometimes I want to do something that the client won't let me do. I will talk about that in the sex and independence segment of the show. Yes, you heard it right. So for those of you about to sign off early, no, no. Heat up a croissant, sit down. We're going to be talking about that a little bit later in the show. And if you sign off, you're going to regret it. Uh, We're going to get a little risque there. Uh, But for in the meantime, (laughs) let's talk about your style and your inspiration, because I want to have people to have who, who are not sitting in front of a computer, not Googling right now. Uh, to be able to have a mental picture of what we're talking about. 
so again, I'm going to use a, an outside cultural reference to start with. So I think of the movie Pet Cemetery, which got remade. Uh, I'm not sure how I feel about it, uh, about any remakes, <laughs> but I'm an old guy. But the Pet Cemetery movie poster, I mean, it's an artist rendition. And I just love that. I love it. Uh, you know, little girl wearing a mask with her dog in front of a house in a full moon. And, and I'm like, yes, this should be an artist. You can't do with photography what, what I mean, maybe you can, but but I'm really glad that it was an artist. So when I think about trying to convey deep a deeper emotional reality, suspense, tension, um, eeriness and horror and curiosity and a whole bunch of other things in an image, I think, well... First, I think you got to go to Melissa Whitaker, but the other <laughs> other thing is I think you got to get an artist, you know? So when I look at your work, I'm going to pick two images. One we've already mentioned. So there's a bar scene. And in the bar scene, uh, somebody's leaning up against the bar having a conversation. There's another table in the back where some people are having a conversation. They're closer to the band. There's a guy up on the stage playing a piano. He's part of the band, but he's a little apart from the band. Uh, and then there's a group of people in, closer to the front. So they're bigger. They're clo closer to the front and center of the scene. And they're gathered around a table in a multitude of comfortable chairs in various positions and postures. And they're having a discussion. Um, I almost want to thank dogs who play pool, you know, uh, but I actually like this better. Um, love that stuff. I, like <laughs> I love all of that. But uh, you've got a set of colors here and sensibilities that are clearly different than this other scene. They're, these are sort of like, I feel like I'm looking at an environment that would have Prince or Miles Davis or uh, David Bowie equally at home, uh, but would not be stilted and corporate. It's not, people are wearing suits, but there's a little bit of open collar. It's not a, what I would call a uh, a suited vibe. <laughs> your your top button is buttoned. You're, you're all the way you're all the way stiff. This is a relaxed kind of vibe. And then the, the other scene is a scene, uh, that scene is at freeagentsource.com for those who wonder. The other scene at madpipe.com is a scene where um, there's a guy walking across, uh, I guess it's sort of a walkway. It's at night. He's smoking a cigarette. You don't see his head. You just see the cigarette burning in his hand. Uh, so you see the, the lower two thirds of his body. Um, there's a fast car on the right and uh, there's a gleaming sort of business building he's walking to. He's wearing a suit. He's wearing nice shoes. Looks like expensive leather shoes. The building is clearly a, a modern building. Uh, it almost makes me think, you know, there's there's major law firms in here and a giant server farm and a bunch of other stuff. This is not in rural New Jersey. This thing is probably in Manhattan or or downtown Chicago. And that's got kind of that noir purple glow, you know, that is, is blues and purples and dark, dark blacks, etc. And I would say that the situations that you're presenting in that scene are modern, but the color scheme and style is contemporary noir. It, it makes me think Pulp Fiction meets Sam Spade. The bar scene is modern, uh, but that 80s wave makes me think, okay, David Bowie on the back of Prince's motorcycle while Prince waves to him from a red Corvette. So your work has this kind of pop art ethos in general with a wide eclectic range. Those are very different images. Uh, there's a bit of art deco that I can detect. You know, I'm not an art expert, uh, but I, uh, I collect it. I like it. But what I see is a bit of art deco, a bit of mid-century vintage, I would say, and some, some of the other broad sensibilities we sort of mentioned. But all of it, I'd call a little bit flamboyant, somewhat high fashion haute couture, maybe even a little retro avant-garde. 
So here's the first question. What's up with that? Are you Andy Warhol for 2021 or what? <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I was Andy Warhol for 2021. Um, I definitely am inspired by Andy Warhol. I pull a lot from Peter Max. I love Peter Max. I love the vibrant colors of Peter Max. Um, there's some Leroy Neiman and some Robert McGinnis. And I pull a lot from several different places. I was raised very open-minded and raised with Playboy on the coffee table. And I enjoyed looking through Playboy magazine because of the artwork. And a lot of these artists would be in Playboy and they would express. There was one illustrator, Doug Seenit, and he often did the bar scenes or a crowded scene, a party scene. And if you look through his illustrations, every face in that scene has some sort of emotion. There's stuff going on in the background. Um, and as my time working as a cocktail waitress, I kind of pulled from all of that for the bar scene that I created for free agent stores. And I just tried to put all you know, emotions a pull from whatever inspires me. And sometimes it can be a walk through the woods that will get me inspired. And I kind of took that walk and put it into the picture you were describing for Mad Pipe with the man walking across the crosswalk. Say he's going to a meeting and he's got to make an impression. So he's gathering up his confidence as he's walking across the street. You know, I'm going to nail this. I've got this. Yeah. You know, I can, I can really see it, Melissa. Uh, so I wouldn't have thought Peter Max, but you know, I imagine that Doug Sneed, uh, famous playboy illustrator, that is certainly coming through in your work, in my opinion. Also, yes. Now that you mentioned it, Leroy Neiman, uh, Robert McGinnis, very, very clear. Uh, and, uh, I I can't help uh, but think that this vibe uh, it's not what I expected when somebody says they're, they're <laughs> when somebody says the play I grew up with Playboy on the coffee table I mean people could get the wrong impression like what kind of household was that you know <laughs> look etc um, I I don't it's a very open minded well that's where I was going to go I I think what we're talking about is a household that had some liberated ideas as well as. Uh, an eclectic, so it wasn't only Playboy and there were no other books in the house. Uh, but at the same time, it's surprising because uh, when I look at your art, uh, you you live in, and, and by the way, in addition to those names, I probably would have said Hopper, but uh, you know, I didn't hear you mention Hopper as an influence, but it's who I had in mind earlier and I, I sort of held back. Uh, but you live currently in Southeast Missouri and I don't really know if that's where you grew up, but you, you live there and looking at your work, I think you probably would spend your days, you know, wearing a fedora, smoking in the City of Angels, uh, maybe even as the art director on the set of uh, a third remake, a better remake of Miami Vice, you know, uh, but you don't, you're, you're in Missouri. And so the question is, when did this, what I would call a big city feeling and a sort of eclectic metropolitan and cosmopolitan sensibility 
uh, start to emerge in your work? Or do you, do you not live in one place and are sort of inspired by another? Um, I do put it as the way I was raised. And it was very open-minded and very expand your knowledge. That knowledge was the key to power. And I was a Navy brat. I was born in Hawaii, lived in Southern California, moved to Southern New Jersey. And then finally, we ret- my father retired and we moved to rural Missouri. And where the school I went to was like from kindergarten through 12th grade was just a little over 300 students. It was a bit of a culture shock. And I started reading a lot and diving into books, taking trips to museums, and traveling to expand my horizons. And Playboy magazine was one of those. I actually read the articles (laughs) for living in a rural town, seeing the world through other people's eyes, through a magazine, through a book, just made me look at it differently. The world wasn't all cows. And so my artwork, I wanted to bring that world more to the community here. Yeah, you know, uh, Melissa, when I look at your work, I'm reminded that Clark Hewlings uh, also did works as a mid-century commercial illustrator before becoming a, a full-time easel painter. And he created... In fact, you know, hundreds of book and album covers, some of them are are quite risque, especially the pulp novels. And most of them have that sort of uh, strong pulp vibe. I think you've seen them. Uh, I'm I'm wondering if that, in addition, you mentioned Playboy, but if pulp as a distinct um, genre from Playboy has uh, been something that's been important uh, in the formation of your aesthetic. Yes, because as I said, I was an avid reader. I would read everything, and I would grab the the artwork from the book, and I would just always find it fascinating. I always wanted to, you know, do a painting for a book cover, and there is some strong influence, but a lot going back to the movies with the classic movies, and I would watch the noir movies. I was a huge Humphrey Bogart fan. Still am. And so a lot of the black and white, the um, Maltese Falcon, all of those, Sam Malone, I love those pictures. There was a sensuality to them that is not quite into the pictures, the movie that they create today. So uh, I... I think a lot of people wonder at this um, element of work like this. Um, and I look at it a little bit like Marvel. Uh, you know, I, I'm sort of annoyed that every time I want to go go see a movie, it's by Marvel. <laughs> and I, I'm like, all right, enough with the comic books. Make some movies for adults that, may, that I'm interested in. You know, give me something else. Disney, Marvel, Disney, Marvel. Uh, but thank God for Netflix. But uh, in a, I... I want. I think a lot of this stuff is uh, coming back, and I think people are missing a beat. Uh, I think, in terms of one uh, noir, I think is about to have its day, but uh, and pulp is about to have its day. 
But on top of that, we're, we're just seeing more storytelling in general. So I think you take contemporary illustrator Barry Silver's faux pulp novel covers where um, he uses sort of 50 styles uh, to highlight current politics. And I recently mentioned those in uh, the, the Facebook live series, Thriving Tuesdays at the Clark Healings Fund. Uh, for those who want more about that, just visit uh, our Facebook page at the at the Clark Healings Fund. But there's so much tongue in so much cheek in that work. Um, and, you know, it was uh, an interesting decision to, to uh, talk about that in in that presentation, because there are going to be some people that are like, really, it's that's a little R rated. Um, but I see this now expanding into the way companies like Hewlett Packard are doing storytelling uh, or, you know, there's there's plenty of other companies like Lenovo and Zendesk that are doing this sort of thing. All of those companies are are telling stories that pull um, some of their vibe from pulp and pop sensibilities. Uh, so Hewlett Packard Studios has this series called The Wolf, which is a direct reference to Pulp Fiction and uh, the character Winston Wolf, and they even have the say they have Harvey Keitel playing the Wolf, and Christian, actually, I'm sorry, Christian Slater plays it. There's a, there's another series with Harvey Keitel, but the the point is that these are like little mini movies, and they're selling printers. <laughs> they're talking about printer security, and they they got a guy called the Fixer and a guy called the Wolf, and there's a hunt for the Wolf. Uh, these are fantastic uh, films. They've got. Uh, I've seen Getty Images recently did a commercial with uh, not that was a take on Nosferatu, and it was called Nosferatu: The Non-Silent Film. The point being, uh, images are a way to to get past you know silence. Squarespace uh, did a film with Keanu Reeves. Uh, you know, Zendesk. I, oh, that was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. These are this is happening as a uh, an emergence that undoes the tie in corporate suits and is a little bit more like John Hamm in Mad Men, who's, by the way, who you sound like a little bit, you're like, yes, you have to tell the story and, and imagine a guy, it's his first meeting, it's the big meeting he's going to. And I'm hearing Don Draper. So you work for business and corporate messaging and branding um, and that kind of humor and that kind of irony we often don't think of corporations as having that sort of either transgressive or risque or or sly sense of humor. Um, and yet, I think this is a massive opportunity in, in uh, 2021. So that brings me to, to ask you about the relationships you have with clients and how you work with clients, because I think that's on a lot of our listeners' minds. So the first one I want to ask is, how are the decisions made? How much creative freedom do you have? I think a lot of people are worried about giving, if they work with corporate clients, they're going to give up all of either their rights to the work or all of their creative freedom. Do you have comments on that? Well, it varies from client to client. Oftentimes the client might have a specific image in their head that they can't find in stock images or they might find a stock image like it but they want it more stylized to bring out the emotion more so i will you know talk with them on a zoom meeting or on the phone and just between talking to them i get a sense of more of what they are looking for or what they're needing a lot of questions will come out and find out, you know, what kind of mood are you looking for? What 
what do you want your customer to feel when they look at this? What is your objective? And all of that is information that is needed in order to tell the story accurately. And there are some times where I will do a few different rough drafts to get an idea of what the customer will see or want. And there are some times where I will have an image in my head and I will just do the whole thing, the whole image, and send it to them because sometimes the client doesn't know what they want until they see it or they can't envision the rough draft and the final completion of the project. When they see that final, sometimes they'll say, you know, oh, I love that, I love that, but can we change this a little bit over here or can we change the color? Sometimes they'll even say, no, that's not quite what I want. And we will work on it, go back to the drawing board and start again. But it's all right because that image that I already created, I got it out of my head and I can still use it somewhere else or I'll take parts of it and use it somewhere else. I'm not easily offended if they don't like it. <laughs> so uh, I, I've i seen you work with, with drafts and I've seen you work with uh, the one and done approach and somebody sees it and says, oh, I want that. Um, I got to have that now that I've seen it. Uh, I've seen both of those things work and I've seen you do um, uh, roll with the changes, et cetera. And um, I think a lot of people would would ask the question, well, wait a minute, you know, you're just making a product to order. Are you still a fine artist? And uh, and forget that this is how fine art survived uh, the dark ages, that, you know, there were patrons <laughs> and they paid you to paint their wealthy daughters or kings paid you to paint the heroic tale of their battles, etc. Uh, and so there was always kind of a, a bespoke or made to order role um, in in fine art from the beginning. Most of that stuff is hanging in museums all across the country. Uh, or in private collections. So, uh, but I still think that some people would, would say, well, if it's completely made to order, if you're asking them all these questions, how do you uh, also tell your own story as an artist when part of your story is to be sort of a chameleon and tell their story? Uh, so that's my question. Is there, Are there elements of, of you and your vision that are still showing up across this body of work, or is it 100% sort of surrender? Now, there's, there is me and... In... A lot of the work that I do, matter of fact, Reagent Source, one of the characters is me. They told me, put me in there. So, and sometimes just the uh, the expression could be me. The client will tell me, you know, okay, I want this specific kind of scene. I want a, a subway station platform. I will put myself thinking, okay, if I am on the subway, if I get off the subway and I'm on that platform and I'm waiting for how am I going to stand? How am I going to see that train? Where is the train coming from? Who are the people around me? And that's what goes into the picture. So I would say a lot of myself goes into the picture because I put myself there. So your work, especially, and this is me as promise switching to sort of the uh, sex and independence uh, segment of the show. So brace yourself, sit back in your chair, fix yourself a cup of tea and put the kids to bed uh, <laughs> for, for you listeners. You, your work, Melissa, especially your own stuff has, you know, a broad range of themes from delicate and innocent to more suggestive. 
Uh, and put another way, sex is a gleaming, glowing theme in your work, in my view. You always ask me where the line is uh, for me and my brand, and I've seen you do that for others, and I've seen some of the work that didn't pass muster. They're like, oh no, we could never go public for that with that. <laughs> is the, uh, is the, the fine line. The fine line. <laughs> is the corporate environment getting, though, a bit more comfortable now with edgy, uh, SNL-like aesthetics that include a bit more swearing and sex and sort of uh, lightening up? And if so, why do you think that art is now being uh, successful in a business setting? Is, you know, is it despite these elements or because of them? Um, that is a very good question. I would say you can always go back to sex sales or sex sales sales. It's a tongue twister. You know, with the whole Me Too movement, there is an extremely fine line there. And companies sometimes don't want to cross that line. What's missing, I feel, and what may be going out is sometimes the flirtation that can happen, especially in the marketing. There's a humor there. And we have had such a somewhat dark period in my mind. For the last several years, having a little bit of the sexual vibe in the work kind of brings a little bit of a lightness to the subject and to the story because you can't just ignore it. You can't, you know, say, well, you know, that's not there. We don't want it because it's there. Yeah, I, I, in hearing the Don Draper Mad Men sort of vibe, when you say, yep, sex sells. It sells cars, mm -hmm. jewelry, airline tickets to the Bahamas. Yeah. Um, and the, that is true. And, uh, and so the idea that corporate America can't handle sex is a little weird, uh, but can't help but notice, and I think you're alluding to this, that, you know, the 70s were far more risque. Uh, than the 80s in oh, terms yeah. of what movies showed. You could say things in movies in the 70s and did uh, in in theaters and on, on uh, national television and in corporate ads that in the 80s, uh, they zipped that stuff up. Uh, and after that time, we reached in the 90s, there there was this dis this whole discussion about workplace harassment and so on that muddied the waters quite a bit in terms of what the artist's freedom consisted of to explore issues of, you know, sexuality, persuasion, the, the, the normal relationships between people, etc. But I think you're seeing a lot of this start to come unwrapped again. Uh, subway posters in New York City are notoriously graphic uh, in, in both language and content. On CBS, you can use the F-bomb now. Why? Because everything is streaming. It's not, you're not tuning your rabbit ears in while the whole family gathers around with their TV trays and their TV dinners. Uh, you know, if you're watching CBS, it's because you chose it on your iPad while your kid's off watching something else, doesn't want to watch your show, Dad. And remote work has probably contributed to this a lot. But uh, the fact remains that sexy by committee doesn't work. You can't really have that stuff if a whole team's going to sit around and nitpick it apart and say and synthesize it to a a, a vanilla uh, sort of watered down sort of thing. So you alluded to, you know, sort of a value, that Don Draper value, that the, the visual language of persuasion includes sexuality and that sexuality in that context is uh, pretty powerful. And so I want to ask you, aside from what 
the issue of what companies will put up with or won't, what, where their line is, it differs brand to brand between how risque they're going to be versus a different brand. Uh, I imagine, you know, Hyatt and JetBlue and Hewlett Packard all have very different answers to this. Um, aside from the, the gates or the ropes or the handcuffs that get put in front of you to, to limit what you can and can't do, what about when the, the gloves are off and you can do what you want? How do you choose or make decisions about how to use that power? Because now it's up to you. Do, do you see what I mean? It's up to If somebody says, do your worst, um, you are the one making the decisions then. And I assume there's every shade in between. So, so how do you decide how to use that power of sexuality in your work uh, to, to create a response of persuasion or persuasiveness in the audience? Boy, that's a tough one. <laughs> Sometimes it's just a curve of the line. Um, I, I did a a movie poster for you. The style had kind of a James Bond quality, and you wanted my mind automatically went to James Bond, and so therefore there had to be a little bit of and the poster. So I just kind of did a contour, the S contour of a woman in the background. You didn't ask me to put that on there. Um, matter of fact, you never even mentioned that at all. But once it was there, you didn't object to it because it did add a little bit of emotion, a little bit of excitement to the poster itself. That was something I did on my own. And then one of the bar scenes, the painting I call Excel, that one is basically all about that release. <laughs> it's the post-coital cigarette sort of mood that I was going for. For me, I find a lot of freedom and liberation and even a little bit of confidence when I do a little or take a little of the sexuality and put it out there. It's kind of a psychological thing for me. You asked the previous question was putting yourself into the work. That is all part of putting myself in the work. People may call me bad names for it. <laughs> no, I, okay. and I don't think they will. Uh, if they do, they, you know, uh, that's their problem. But I uh, yeah, I remember that work. I thought you were talking about a different one because there was there was a one for a different brand where um, I was involved in that project, and you showed me the contours of a woman um, aligned with a musical instrument, and I said, "Oh hell no, uh, we can't put oh, that. that one." <laughs> yeah, I I was thought you yeah, that's what you were talking about for a minute. I'm like, I can't put that out there. Do you know that every everybody in our audience looking at that will go. They, their mind will go to one place right away. They're going to need a fan and a cold drink of water. Uh, and I'm like, okay, we can't. It's it's too powerful. Uh, but it's not that I didn't like it. I liked it. I just thought, whoa, uh, that's that's like saying, can can I have a sandwich and somebody makes you a quadruple decker? On the other hand, the movie poster you gave, um, I didn't notice it at first. I was already, honestly, I didn't know you did that. And I was... Uh, now I have to go back through every work you've ever done and the, for us anyway, and look at the look look for the Easter eggs that I don't know are there. But uh, but I was 
I was looking at the work and I was just like, oh yeah, this is pretty good and and so on. And it was only, I don't know, a couple of days later, I looked at it and went, wait a minute. <laughs> There's more to that. It's like an episode of I Seinfeld. that one, Pastor. You sneaked it. Yeah, it was like, uh, what is this in this photo, Kramer? For those who are Seinfeld fans, it explains everything. Um, well, so, let, so you're talking about movie posters and you're referencing uh, in particular, a poster you made uh, for um, a short film, which is an advertisement, very much like the Hewlett Packard ones I was talking about, but but this one was uh, for Mad Pipe. It's one of its advertisements. Um, I like separating those two words uh, as a, a small movie, and you made a movie poster to go with it, which is is quite common actually. People these days are making you know nine minute advertising films and making, you know, uh, 45 second trailers for them and making movie posters and everything. It's, it's, it's a whole thing. Uh, so you intimated to me once in a phone call and we'll, we'll move on. Well, you can wake the kids back up and, and, uh, we're going to call this segment, the movie poster segment, but you, you intimated to me once in a phone call and I'm going to out you now that you always wanted to do movie posters. Uh, and in fact, uh, you've done, as you just mentioned, movie posters for Mad Pipe and for FAS as part of scenes. Uh, you may have done them for other clients. I'm just not aware of, of that work as closely. But as part of scenes and even to support our advertising videos, which are like more like short films than most ads of, say, the 80s and 90s, where things were a little tighter and more corporate and sort of, you know, vanilla and white labeled. Have you that dream of making movie posters um, for Hollywood? Have you cashed in that dream or does this body of work that you're producing or this type of work sort of fulfill it in part? I have attempted to cash in on that dream. <laughs> I created a poster for the movie Gone Girl years ago because they filmed that movie in my hometown, Cape Girardeau, and I stalked. I was stalking Ben Affleck and David Fincher. And I created a movie poster and sent it to him. Never did hear back on that. So, David Fincher, if you're listening, I want to know if you ever got that. Yeah, I, it is something that I would love to do sometime. Well, what's funny about that is it's not that different. I mean, it is that's still... Um, fine art for a commercial application, and it's very much how the movie poster came into existence. So I love, I love that you're still interested. And and frankly, yes, Ben Affleck, uh, know that we might stalk you some more. If I was going to stalk one actor anyway, it would be Ben Affleck. You know, <laughs> where is he? What is he doing? I mean, I'm not much of a stalker type, but if it had to be, I, I'd choose Ben. I I wish though um that you could do euro sort of bollywood korean movie posters first and it's a pet wish oh, of mine. Yeah, well the reason is they sort of need a new source of inspiration that isn't coming out of this stasis that we see in a lot of hollywood art where we're still glued to that three-head model. Uh and so I wonder if you've thought of of chasing the euro as part of your your business. I have thought about that. I have learned over the past several years that I need to get farther out, grow more internationally. And over the past year, I have met this international artist here in town. Or She, she lives like 30 miles away from me, and I've idolized her for years. And I found out recently, last year that she's only 30 miles away from me. And she's become kind of a mentor for me 
and her name's Allie Cavanaugh, and she's kind of taught me a little bit about the international market and a little bit on how to possibly break into the international market. So that is one of my goals for 2021, to get out there. So, um, yeah, I'll need to send some stuff to Bollywood. I, I think there's a I think there's a lot of potential to break the rules there and sort of define their own way. You know, Korean pop, uh, K-pop has uh, has broken many of the rules that uh, you see traditional sort of hip hop and stuff do um, and, and other types of pop music. I see a lot of creativity and, and a lot of energy and just excitement uh, coming out of Bollywood. And certainly European theaters uh, are constantly doing things that. Uh, push the level of risk. I know that one of the films that you and I both love is Leon the Professional, and uh, it it breaks my heart that most Americans have only seen the American version, which is just called The Professional. And uh, it's cut down. There are several scenes cut out of it in order to bowdlerize it uh, that have to do with uh, sexuality and other things uh, that actually make it a a less sociopathic and a more sound film. Uh, but because somebody made sort of a corporate decision of you can't show that in a film, they cut it out, leaving the ambiguity in place that makes it a little more dysfunctional. Uh, and uh, it's it's bizarre. So for those who haven't seen the French version, uh, it's it's in English, but uh, it's called the international version or, or whatever. Um, I would look up Leon the Professional and Dump the Professional. Great film. Uh, and they're open to sort of these discussions. And I, I've seen a lot of European European movies lately that have gotten some attention for, hey, is this going too far? And it's only in sort of suburban America that this is really a problem. Uh, so I, I think there's money there. I really do. Uh, let me ask you one more thing about movie posters, though. Favorite movie poster and why? Uh, <laughs> That's putting you on the spot. Midsummer Night Sex Comedy with the Woody Allen. <laughs> okay, Why? Well, it's based off of the Shakespeare play, Midsummer Night's Dream. And it is very minimal. It is basically the black silhouette on a white background. And it's just a man carrying a woman, you know, kind of a cradling her and carrying her. And to me, that just, with the whole title also, Midsummer Night Sex Comedy. And then you have this man carrying... It, to me, it is so intriguing. I used to have it hanging up on my bedroom wall, you know, when I was a teenager. And I've lost that poster since. I would love to have that poster again. Not a big Woody Allen fan, but I love that poster. Yeah, I'm not a big Woody Allen fan, but I, I like his... Obviously, I respect him as an artist, and I like, uh, I like the film Zelig. That is one of my favorite of all times, you know, uh, Z-E-L-I-G for those for those that are interested. Uh, it's one of the rarer films that most people don't think of when they think of Woody Allen. And I just thought it was hilarious. Well, uh, all right. So I want to finish up with a final segment. Uh, the show is a bit long, but I think this is actually worth digging into uh, because um, I think your career is fascinating, Melissa. And I, I think a lot of people are probably glued to the set listening to this uh, just as I am glued to the mic uh, listening to you now. So, but let's do go ahead and say, I saved the boring part for last. Let's get to the boring part. Because <laughs> I, I always tell people, I don't care where you came from. I care where you're going, but let's satisfy the curiosity anyway. Um, so you started, you said sometime in 2018, and you came out of real estate as your profession and you switched to art as uh, your primary work. So what I want to know is how did you manage to make that switch and what made you decide it was time to do it? 
Well, I have always been an artist. I majored in art in college, did not finish my college degree simply because, well, I was raped in college, so I did not go back. And I actually did put my artwork to the side for a long time. And when, you know, I got married, had children, and then I was driving down the road one day saying, all right, what am I going to do? And I saw this big billboard about real estate. And my mother was a realtor and a broker. And I was like, oh, I can do that. Because I've just always been kind of one of those who, you know, I can do that, whatever it is. And so I got my real estate license. And then in 2007 was very, very traumatic year. Just one bad thing happened right after the other, right after the other. 2020, it was a really good year compared to 2007. And so in March 2008, I went to Hobby Lobby and picked up a piece picked up a canvas and some paint and sat down and was like, okay, I have to find myself again. Who am I? So I was terrified of putting that first stroke on this bare white canvas, but I did it. And I just did a very quick abstract painting and I felt like just this whole weight of the world was released and gone. And I said, why did I let this go? And I never stopped. I just kept painting after that. And I will never put it to the side again. So in April of 2018, I went to the Clark Hewlings Fund Business Seminar in Santa Fe, New Mexico. And I had been to a lot of conferences in the real estate business. And they always tried to sell you something. And after a while, it was just the same old, same old stuff. And then I actually went to one that wanted $30,000. And I was like, I don't have $30,000. But the Santa Fe conference was energizing. It was eye-opening. It was soul-opening, really. And didn't try to sell me a thing. Just really, if anything, they tried to sell me on myself. And I set a goal when I was sitting there that I was going to be out of real estate and full-time artist by January 1st, 2020. And I worked towards that goal. And December 22nd, 2019, I walked into my broker's office and handed him my license. And I was terrified. I was like, oh my gosh, how am I going? I don't want to be a starving artist. How am I going to do this? And what I learned was the more positive energy you put out there, the more passion you do with your art or whatever your career might be. The more love you put into it, the more it feeds you. And it just keeps building and building. And it's wonderful. And now my artwork is going to be on a 14-foot by 48-foot billboard in town. And I'm like, 
it's so funny because that's how I started my real estate career was this billboard. And now I'm starting my art career on a billboard. I think that's fascinating. Yeah, I do too. It's certainly a strong story. And I love the irony of it. And also you were just a billboard or a, a flyer for uh, the Clark Healings Fund's conferences. Uh, I was teaching at that conference. I remember I remember that conference. Uh, so that's that's nice. Um, and I love that you kind of gave us some insight into what you took away from the training. I'm glad it was good value. I can't imagine taking $30,000, but, uh, if Ben Affleck shows up at the next one, I want $30,000 for our next conference, <laughs> you know, not from you that, guys, that but was a real estate conference. That was a real estate conference. Yeah. How do they get away? Yeah. With that? I mean, yeah, people actually did it. I mean, how good I were the grapes and the cheese? I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, it was a marketing seminar. They were saying, you know, they do all this marketing for you for $30,000. And now I'm doing better marketing, and I don't charge $30,000. I should, but I don't. <laughs> you will uh, eventually. I hope you'll still work with me back in the days when you are Andy Warhol. <laughs> Uh, and whether or not I can afford you. Uh, just remember, I tried to help you get Ben Affleck. But uh, so I I think that that tells us a lot about sort of the learning curve and where you came from and how you went. I want to say that what I like about your work um, as we finish up the show is, you know, there's so many people that say they love color or that beauty is important. These sort of, sort of, when you ask them what their story is and why they do this, it's sort of a generic set of ideas that apply to all kinds of art and indeed all kinds of things. Like I could buy a pet or a sweater or a toaster cozy with those ideas in mind, you know, beauty and color and the power of, of light, you know, so, so why their art, right? Um, with you, it is, it is very clear uh, and the story is, is cogent. So I love that. Uh, with you, I feel like we can have a conversation about the fun, the adventure, and what's cool about the things that you're seeing uh, amplified and exaggerated in popular media and sort of represented in some way. And that stuff interests me. Uh, so, you know, you're an artist I can talk to about an action film that just came out. You know, what do you think of The Irishman? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that I don't care about the aesthetics. I, I do care deeply if one takes a look at freeagentsource.com, for instance, and sees uh, I, I just really dig the blue glass in the first image. I'm like, God, that is so great. We didn't ask for that. This is fantastic. We wouldn't have known how to ask for that, but it's way better. Uh, but, you know, I'm not looking for curtains. I'm looking for a story. And uh, and the story is that you're telling with the art is commensurate with the quality of, you know, the story of yourself as an artist. Uh, so I want to finish by asking uh, the final uh, question or two, which is, you know, what are you working on now, right now? What are your goals uh, in business for 2021, the coming year? Well, I'm working on a couple of things right now, along with Mad Pipe and Free Agent Source. I am working on illustrating and writing a book based off of a dragon that I have created. And then I have... <laughs> Kind of a, a sexual leaning line of series of paintings that I want to do based off of pearls. I've always found it extremely interesting that pearls, there's the vision of the woman wearing the pearl necklace. It's always classy. It's always elegant and upper crust. And then, you know, there's the saying about her clutching her pearls you know, out of shock of something. And gosh, I love shocking people. 
So I want to do a series all based on that and the fact that, you know, these upper crest lady who is clutching her pearls, does she even realize that those pearls come from an aphrodisiac? And <laughs> that pearls have a whole different meaning sexually as well. And I find that juxtaposition of that so intriguing. And I just have to put it on canvas. And I have already started on that. And I'm excited to see <laughs> where it goes. Well, we told people so, they could bring their kids back out of the bedroom, but I, I yeah, maybe it was too soon. <laughs> but I, I will say that, you know, Vermeer's girl with a pearl earring, that pearl is more than a pearl, too. I, every pearl is more than a pearl unless yeah. you painted it with the same mentality that uh, a stock photographer takes a stock image. I'm not knocking it, by the way. There's plenty of good and decent people that make their living off of stock photography. And I think especially these days, uh, that's certainly one business opportunity, mm. especially if you do that, make that decision right. Um, I'd love to have a show about that sometime. There, uh, there are lots of insights I have as a purchaser of stock photography for a variety of purposes and clients and businesses that um, that I could certainly bring and love to have somebody. But but even aside from that issue, uh, you know, in general, outside of stock, a pearl is always more than a pearl. Uh, and so I love that you're sort of answering that earlier question of, is this pursuit of corporate art or art for a corporate venue, I think is a better a better moniker. Is that keeping you from pursuing your vision? And, and clearly it's not. Um, so last question, anything you want to say to your audience about what you can do for their business or even whether what kinds of businesses you're willing to work with or what size or whatever. I would love to do a wine label. <laughs> that is a goal of mine. I want to do a wine label sometime. But, you know, years ago when I was in real estate, I, I wanted my own website. And I had a vision for my own website. And I paid thousands of dollars, not $30,000, but I paid thousands of dollars for this website that I wanted. And I wanted it to be different from all the other websites. And after working with the person, I never, I never got that website. It never even got published because we never achieved what I wanted. It was never individual enough. So that is what I want to give to clients. I want to give them something that tells who they are and just tells their company's story and makes them stand out from all of the others. And I want them to be satisfied with the end result. I don't want them to feel like it was a cookie cutter, generic template that they were given and they paid paid thousands of dollars for it. Yeah, I want to put their soul into their company story. Uh, well, excellent. So if you are a wine label and you are listening to uh, this show <laughs> or know somebody with a wine label uh, who's looking for an artist, uh, I can't recommend uh, Melissa Whitaker uh, any higher. Uh, she has the maximum recommendation from me. I, I love her work. I think uh, the 
it's not just about the work. It can have somebody whose work is fantastic and they're hell to work with. Um, I've found that she's also great to work with. And so I'm your client. I think we fully disclosed that, uh, mm -hmm. Melissa, but I'm also a collector and a fan. And uh, so for those of you who haven't checked out her portfolio by now, while you're listening to the show, I'm about to give you some information about that. You've been listening to The Thriving Artist Podcast, an educational feature of the Clark Healings Fund for Visual Artists. If you've enjoyed this program, be sure to subscribe to new episodes and review your experience on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you tune in. For more information on Melissa's work, visit her website, itsallintheart.com, or follow her on Instagram at instagram.com slash melissawhitakerart. This show depends on support from listeners like you, so consider giving to the Keep This Show broadcasting and bringing you events and guests like these. Click Give at our website, clarkhealingsfund.org. And for those desiring to sponsor an episode or become a sponsor, you can do that at clarkhealingsfund.org slash go slash sponsor. Thanks for listening. And thanks again to Art Placer. Thank you, Melissa. It's been really great having you. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure talking with you. Two.